Hi there, I'm Lori Hellman, a mom to an incredible young adult son on the autism spectrum. My goal when creating the Living the Sky Life podcast three years ago was that the content of each episode bring hope, connection, and some valuable takeaways to each listener. The special needs parenting village is large, so you should never feel like you have to travel this journey alone. If you haven't already, please connect with me through my website, Facebook page, or Instagram account. And let's keep the conversation going after each episode airs. If you are enjoying the podcast and are listening on Apple iTunes, please leave a rating and written review and share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for tuning in and subscribing to season three of Living the Sky Life. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Living the Sky Life. As always, I greatly appreciate the support and uh, the feedback and everything that I get um, as far as comments and reviews. So if you are listening on Apple iTunes, if you would go and review and rate the podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. Now moving on to my guest for today. Um, My guest is Lisa Dempsey. She is a special needs mom and is the founder and CEO of the Forgotten Wishes Foundation whose mission is to inspire a sense of belonging and be a source of joy for people with disabilities. Lisa also writes a blog about her experiences called Cluck Howl Crow. Lisa is happiest when spending time with her husband, Robert, and family. To refuel her mind and body, Lisa travels in her trailer named Rosemary Von Wonder, takes walks on the beach, or binge watches Broadway musicals in New York City. Lisa and Robert have been married for 18 years, have four children, and live in Houston, Texas. So please enjoy my conversation with Lisa Dempsey. So welcome back to another episode of Living the Sky Life. I'm really excited about all of the guests I have in April, and particularly Lisa Dempsey, who is here with me today. Um, I'm talking a lot to um, parents with adults on the spectrum, and um, as you guys know from some of my other um podcast recordings recently. That's a whole area now that Skylar is 19 that I'm delving into even more in depth. So I cannot wait to unpack all of Lisa's great expertise (laughs) with me in this realm. So Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Lori. I really appreciate you having me on. I'm excited to get to speak with you and maybe share some information that might help some of your other listeners. It's been a a long journey. (laughs) It has, and it never ends, obviously. But um, so your daughter, Lindsay, who we'll talk um, a lot about, and also your son too, but um, Lindsay is 30. So um, I never expect guests that have older um, children, they're still our children, Mm -hmm. even if they're adults. Um, I never expect you guys to go all the way back to diagnosis and tell all the things because that's kind of a different phase almost of our lives. But um, can you tell all of us about, you know, Lindsay's diagnosis and just kind of how you've progressed to the age of 30 with her and kind of all of the milestones and monumental um, experiences that you've had, maybe some challenges (laughs) along the way too um, with her. Sure. Sure. So I am blessed to have, I have four children Mm -hmm. so that people can kind of put this into perspective. So I have a 34 year old daughter who we would, I guess, consider typical, whatever typical is. Mm -hmm. And then we have our second, my second child was Lindsay and Lindsay had a normal birth. Everything's great. Um, At that point in time, we were going through lots of different struggles. She wasn't developing 
And I just want to give a little bit of this history because it'll put some of the other things into context mm -hmm. for the listeners, I think, Lori. Um, it was one of those typical situations that so many parents go through of the parent knows there's something wrong. And yet the doctors are, oh, no, you're comparing to this child or you're comparing to that situation. And you just need to be patient and they'll come along. And she didn't come along. Uh, and as we continue to work on tests, we eventually uh, were, I was volunteering at the school district and, and finally the principal came up and had a conversation with me and really encouraged me to go for some more developmental tests. And we did that. And I got the diagnosis at the time, um, you know, many years ago of mental retardation. Now we call that obviously intellectual developmental disability. And, but at that point in time, that was a pretty stark thing just to hear. It was, came across very harshly. Um, and it like wasn't that long parents. ago. I'm shocked they still use that term. And she's not like she's 60 or 70. I mean, that wasn't no. that long ago for them to no. still say that. It's, it's still a diagnosis on her doctor's forms oh, today. Yuck. It's, yeah, yeah, that's again, that's a whole nother. Yeah. Policy decisions and things like that. But it was, it was quite a, it's been quite a journey. Uh, we've had, we went through lots of behaviors, lots of, of different things um, where I didn't ever think she would speak. And finally, about the time she was six, we got language. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's been a blessing, but it's also, boy, it's a lot of language. <laughs> I know. Careful what you wish for sometimes, right? <laughs> careful what, yeah, but it's awesome. But we, um, we went through the typical school problems that people have and Lindsay's is just the most delightful social young lady that anybody could meet. She has overcome so many obstacles uh, and a lot of that has just been through us making different decisions and pushing and different therapies and really learning over time to follow my gut and to really push back when I needed to push back, whether that was with schools or doctors or whatever we needed to do. Um, and then we made the, the decision to start transitioning Lindsay as she was aging out of school, Lindsay really wanted to experience the same thing she saw her older sister experience of leaving home. You know, older sister went off to college and did all these fun things and Lindsay wanted to have something similar. And that was really a challenge. Mm -hmm. It was really a challenge finding something that was appropriate. Um, and of course, there's nothing that's ever provided. So we also had to find something that we could afford because it was going to be private pay. Um, and we did find a program here. We're in Houston. So we mm -hmm. found a program called the Center for Pursuit, mm -hmm. which is an awesome program if anybody wants to look them up online and kind of see what they do. But that's a, the Center for Pursuit. And at that point, they had a private residential facility. It was kind of like an old apartment building complex. And they had an on-site uh, vocational program and lots of different, more old-fashioned, traditional piecework kind of things. And we had to hire full-time care to transition her around and do things. Um, and we did that for about a year. And we really realized that although her ability to communicate with us 
was very high, her executive functioning was not living up to where it needed to be for that environment. So she came home and she was home for quite some time. And about that point in time, we had had Luke. Mm -hmm. Uh, Luke is the youngest and Luke had lots of struggles coming up and he was diagnosed very late. He was diagnosed with autism at eight and a half. Wow. Okay. Um, And before that, he was just, you know, that bad boy. You know, it was all just, he's just a bad kid. He's Mm -hmm. just a bad kid. Um, You're bad parents. He's a bad kid. You spoil him, you know, all those things. Or he has ADHD, which is what everyone wants to say. (laughs) Right. Uh, And the scratch itch between having Lindsay at home and Luke going through some very Mm -hmm. challenging behaviors, um, some aggressive behaviors, and Lindsay not understanding what was happening, why that was happening. Why didn't her little brother just love her and want to hug her and cuddle her and, you know, do all of those things. Mm -hmm. And why was there always these challenging situations? We realized we had to, we had to divide and conquer. And the only way we could do that was to find another residential setting for Lindsay. And how old was she at that point? And at that point in time, she was 25. Okay. And we found a, another residential facility here in our community. Again, it was private pay. So um, to give the folks out there an idea, we were, we were fortunate. It was $3,500 a month plus her, plus her SSI. So all of that went towards all of that. So, <laughs> you know. And that doesn't mean that you're not, you know, still buying clothes and, you know, dinners out and providing other things that you, you know, the, the money for Special Olympics bowling, it's, it, it was over about 5,000 a month for, mm-hmm. for all of that. Um, but a wonderful group home it was a 16 bed facility. She had her own room. She had a day program to go to. Um, and then through that, there's a McDonald's that's next door. And she was able to get a job at that local McDonald's. And she's been there now for four and a half years. Oh, I love that. She and everybody in the community, when they go into McDonald's knows Lindsay, Um, (laughs) all the, all the local police officers go in and get their cups of coffee and make sure Lindsay's the one that brings it out to their car. Um, They bring her little (laughs) Christmas cards and Christmas gifts, you know, over the holidays. She just, you know. She's like, I'm sorry, I'm going to break the rules, but you have to have a hug today. You look like you're having a bad day. Oh, <laughs> that's sweet. So she just, and she will, she's really, she is a sweetheart. Um, but that was a fortunate situation. I was able to, you know, the next financial step there was we were able to get her on a waiver program mm-hmm. and that helped us significantly financially. Because they paid at that point, they took over. Well, they took over for the majority of the cost for the group home for that residential facility. Now there was a fight to do that, and I had to appeal, and it was about a nine-month process to go through that. Once they denied it, and to appeal it, and to win the appeal, um, because Lindsay has, in addition to IDD, she has severe anxiety. 
Um, she has OCD. She can have some mood swings. And, and at that point in time, she was also going through some depression. There were a lot of changes going on in life. We had, you know, she was concerned about Luke. There were a lot of family dynamics and things that were happening that she just didn't understand. And she was really trying to, to cope with that. So she was on quite a bit of medication to help support her at that point in time through those things. And believe it or not, the state had originally decided to decline her waiver because they said mental health was not covered under Medicaid. And we're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, we've had the same situation here in Indiana. It's two different. That's how a lot of families I'm learning as the process goes along. There are two different waivers for us, Um, a family and supports waiver, which is minimal um, amount of coverage. It's like, I think Skylar gets 60 hours of respite a month, which I'm his respite provider. And um, (laughs) because there isn't anyone, so I just get paid to to do everything I already do as his mom. Um, And then that's pretty much it. There's not much left in the budget for anything else. The other waiver that is significant, I don't even know if there's a cap on it, for someone as severe as him, to enable to get that, the three criteria that must be met, um, your caregivers must be over the age of 80. Um, you must have a deceased parent um, that can't care for you, uh, or you need um, weekly medical intervention, like a transfusion or, or something that requires like a hospital visit mm-hmm. and transportation, all that stuff. Basically sickness outside of autism. Those are the only three criteria currently that allow for anyone to be considered for the other waiver. And so people have figured out that that's the autism side of things. If you go the mental health route, there's a different set of criteria and a different waiver altogether, I think for that. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a game. So, but I understand Mm -hmm. what you're saying about them differentiating between mental health and an intellectual diagnosis or something. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, but she had both. So it was a core morbid, morbid situation. So anyway, so we, we won that battle. And then finally, after 16 years, we came up on the interest list in Texas and she's finally on home community-based services. Yeah. And so now we've moved her into a three room, three bedroom group home, smaller that's still here in the community. She's literally five minutes away still working at McDonald's, still doing all the things that she loves. Um, she's the youngest retiree that I know. She could be <laughs> the director of a cruise ship. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh so, I mean, that's the really, that's the really high level without getting into the down and dirty of what it was like when she was five and she couldn't communicate. And we had to put her in the third row of the van because if I didn't, it was, she was going to pull my hair and even uh-huh. then when she couldn't get my communication, there were projectiles that were coming from the back of the, of the vehicle because I drove past the fast food restaurant and she wanted to stop and we weren't stopping or whatever that was at that point in time. There's still lots of struggles. The struggles don't go away. They just change. Mm-hmm. And they change for her and they obviously change for us as parents and trying to always readjust our expectations. You know, group homes are wonderful. We're so blessed to have people who care about her and are there and want to hold those positions. It's not home and it's not the way that you would do it 
in your home. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard sometimes to just step back and be like, all right, that's okay. We have to let them do it their way. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you a couple questions just about, um, so with the facilities that the residential facility she was in before that you guys had private pay, were you also responsible in finding the caregiver for her or was that provided at the residential home? I think the first one you said you had to Mm -hmm. secure care for her. Has it always been that way when it's private pay? It depends on the facility. So the first one was considered um, individual care. And so basically what it was is if you think of a, think of like a hotel Mm -hmm. and that hotel had a gatekeeper at the front door, like the doorman who checked people in and out. So people couldn't just come in and out and roam. People couldn't leave. They had to sign out and it had to be like on their sheet. They were allowed to leave the facility. So that that was kind of how they structured the security part of individuals who were there. So there were a lot of individuals with high functioning autism, a lot of um, high functioning intellectual developmental disability, a lot of individuals with um, mental health issues that they just needed some of that structure. So they Mm -hmm. provided the meals and things like that. Um, And everything was there on a campus. They walked across from their building to another building. If they were in one of the workshops or doing an on a job site there. So there was so much structure during the day. She could do that as long as somebody came, we hired somebody to come in in the morning and get Lindsay, you know, check that Lindsay was able to have bathed and groomed and take her medicine do all those things she needed to do. And then Lindsay would go off for the day and do her things. And then after dinner, they'd come back and they'd check on Lindsay, help her do what she needed to do in the evening to get settled in for bed. And then Lindsay was there overnight and there was Mm -hmm. awake staff in the building, but she was on the fourth floor and you have to take an elevator down to access Mm. staff. Um, so it was just a, a kind of a, a very loose fitting setting. Yeah. And we put in as many supports as we, as we could for her. And what we found was though, was whenever there was some type of a significant medical issue, like, you know, the mom, I don't feel good. You know, it's one o'clock in the morning. Well, the staff there isn't really trained for that. They're trained really for, to make sure that people are, are safe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people aren't roaming around the halls, things like that. So when that kind of thing happened and the, and this facility was about 35, 40 minutes away from our house, it was, I was up, I was in the car and I was driving down, you know, calling the front desk saying, I'm on my way, be prepared to let me in. Lindsay's not feeling well. Mm-hmm. And those were the things that we learned that once something went out of the routine, the anxiety went up so high that she just didn't have the skills to manage Mm -hmm. things at that point. Right. Um, And that's, you know, through those different things, that's where we learned. Yeah. During the day when everything's great and you've got that structure, it, it looks, she looks like one functioning individual. Mm -hmm. but you take that structure away, you take those supports away 
and you put a stressor in, there's, there's a storm. Um, she's not feeling well. There's a change in the schedule that she didn't plan for. That's very sudden. And the anxiety kicks in and takes over. She really needs a lot of supports to regroup from that. Um, it's not something she can do on her own. Gotcha. Well, with the, the two residential living situations she had before, and now the group home, do you, have you noticed a difference in her, um, when she was living in those versus now, um, you know, I'm always intrigued by the number of parents who have told me that when their, um, young adult is in a group home with like peers, you know, and, um, they're just really enjoying, they're feeling more independent. And in, in turn, they're different around their parents. Like when their parents visit or when they come home for the weekends or whatever it is, the behaviors don't seem to be as, um, you know, there just doesn't seem to be the animosity sometimes that there is. And I'm, I'm forward projecting, hoping that, you know, uh, when, if we're at that place with Skylar, that he <laughs> maybe won't be, you know, like he'll enjoy his life a little bit more instead of being attached to me for every single thing, his whole life. Maybe there, not. Is, <laughs> there is definitely an autonomy that happens. Okay. Absolutely. Just like with any of your other, any other typical children who leave, who leave home and experience that, that sense of independence. So there's definitely, that definitely happens. Um, there's definitely growth because there are things that are, ex, are expected in those environments that we don't necessarily expect at home mm -hmm. because we are just so used to planning and preventing everything that we do is about planning for the next thing and preventing something bad that can happen. You're right. Mm -hmm. All day long. It's all we do. <laughs> uh, and they don't do, they do that to an extent, but they just don't have the bandwidth in a group facility or a residential facility to do that for all of the individuals that are there, especially if there's somebody that is a little bit more, um, has a little bit higher level of need of care. Mm -hmm. um, they, they are like, you're just going to have to go, you know, take care of that. And, and they push a little bit harder. Well, you know, you know, you can, you can try that. Let's try that. Let me walk you through trying that. Like we don't let Lindsay use the microwave at home because Lindsay can't differentiate 10 seconds and one minute or one minute and 10 minutes. And you put a hot dog in the microwave for 10 minutes instead of one minute. And I'm oh, telling no. you, it's bad. <laughs> yeah. I imagine explosion. It's oh, bad, yeah. right? You put yeah. popcorn in for 20 minutes instead of two minutes. It's bad. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's dangerous too. I mean, yeah, exactly. And, you know, those are the things that we try to tell people, you know, they just assume, well, using a microwave is easy. You just push these buttons and she gets, she just gets excited and pushes and is like, I don't know if it's this or this. And she just goes with it. She's like, okay, I just want the popcorn. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, she thinks you can just push the popcorn button and walk away, but I can't do that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they're a little bit more, just go try, just go try. And and I'm good with that. If they want to, if something happens there, that's yeah. their mess to clean up. I'm sure they're mine. hovering too. Like they're <laughs> letting her do it, but they're, um, you know, always right yeah. there to, to intervene yeah. if need be. Yeah. Hmm. So I think that the thing that is the, the hardest thing and the thing that I would probably tell you and for the listeners 
is the balance that you build as the parent or the guardian between the living arrangements and the staff. Because the one thing I find that happens, and, and it's happened in every single environment, is staff forgets that that home, that residence, is the client's residence. It's their home. And they often see it, the, the staff often sees it as, well, no, this is my place of work and I'm going to be in this environment and I am in control of this environment. And so what that looks like is, for example, let's say it's seven o'clock and there's a, pro, you know, there's a program that one of the residents, like my daughter might wanna watch on television out in the family room. Well, the decision of what that should be is Lindsay's decision and any discussion between the other roommates as to whether or not that's okay. If we're going to watch this together as a group, is it okay? Not the staff saying, oh no, there's a program on that I want to watch tonight and this is what's going to be on. Oh, e. how do you know of those things happening when you're not there? Well, there are times you'll, you, you know, I mean, you're going to walk in and you're going to, um, see a movie on that, that, you know, <laughs> you're under no circumstances, no, yeah. your child would not have picked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just, you know, and that it's probably not even appropriate for it to be on for anybody. Yeah. In the household. I think that's my biggest and dilemma. If I get to that situation is relinquishing control. I, and I know that sounds terrible probably, but I'm just so used to, like you said, I, I am in charge and I know that this is going to keep him safe and this isn't, and this is something he would enjoy. And if he doesn't, I flip the channel, I'll do whatever I have to do until he smiles. And he, he's in control, but I like feeling like I have control. So and being that he doesn't have a voice, I just fear that he's just going to be miserable without me at a place because they don't know him like I do. They don't know what his little pointing and his yeah. eye rolling they, and what it means. They learn and they, and they know, and what, what ends up happening in a lot of those situations is, is the clients then end up just spending more time in their own rooms mm. where they have their own space. And that's okay. I mean, I, you know, for a long time I had issues with that, but then, you know, Lindsay would come home and one of the, the things that she would enjoy most when she came home would be going up into her room. You know, she has a room here at the house too and curling up on her bed and just being in her space. And it's just kind of, the same thing when she's there at her own home that happens to be the group home. She, and mm-hmm. I'm the one who's always encouraging her, get the girls, you guys go sit down, you know, and pick, pick something to watch or go play a game or go, go do something. Um, and then trying to encourage the staff to engage more with that mm-hmm. and encourage that, you know, it's a beautiful evening. Can you guys go sit on the back porch for a little while and get some fresh air and just enjoy 
you know, the beautiful evening and, you know, maybe have your ice cream or dessert or whatever out on the back porch. Uh, so there are things that you do, you change, you know, you never stop advocating, right. you change how you communicate a little bit. Um, sometimes there's more subtle communication. So in the, like in the, the situation with the movie, I might've said, oh, gee, you know, huh, that's a, you know, that's an interesting movie. Is that something that you really enjoy and start a conversation with the staff? And then I might feed into that. That kind of thing is really not appropriate for Lindsay. Um, you know, she may have nightmares later and it's going to cause some distress and then you might not get sleep later. So it may not be a good thing to have on while, you know, she's, she's in the home. Can you save that for a time that's when she's not here? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, I typically don't speak for the other residents in the house. If I, if I did see something like that, I may call the other guardian and the other guardian make a call as to whether or not they wanted to, to say anything. Right. But you do, you have to really, um, it's kind of the same. It's like a transition, you know, when you're, you're advocating for your loved ones while they're in school. Right. And every time you go to an IEP meeting or you're talking to a teacher, I know in the back of my mind, I'm always worried about repercussions mm-hmm. and they can say in every single ARD meeting or IEP meeting, we have, we call them ARD meetings here in, in Texas, um, that there will never be repercussions, but I can tell you there are repercussions that happen. Yeah. It's human nature. Mm-hmm. It's gonna, you know, it's gonna happen. People take things personally. So it just, that just transitions from, you know, protecting in those environments to protecting in the group home environment, but they, but she definitely be, has become more um, self-sufficient um, in, in many, in many ways. She definitely advocates more for herself. That's good. Which, to see. Well, which typically means mom, I need you too. Yeah, but at least she's <laughs> verbalizing what she needs, right? Um, well, you had yes. mentioned that it took um, 16 years to get finally on the, the, the waiver that you needed, the home and community supports, mm-hmm. um, and to be in the group home. When did you start really looking, um, and I know each child is unique, so I want to I wanna address this question uh, about Lindsay and Luke, um, of, you know, because with him being, what, he's 15? Mm-hmm. Um, at, at his age or at what age did you really start thinking about the future? Like, you know, will they stay in the home? Should we start looking for facilities for 21, 22 when he ages out of traditional services, that kind of thing? Um, cause his situation obviously is a little mm-hmm. different right. than Lindsay's, but you still have to make the call, um, and just kind of start planning for that. So can you kind of talk think- about that a little bit? You know, I think that you start that when they're infants and and toddlers, I (laughs) I think it's the same because it's the same process. It's a different journey, Mm -hmm. but it's the same process as you have for any of your other typical kids. I mean, you've got, um, my, my granddaughters are three and nine months old and my three-year-old granddaughter is on wait lists already for certain schools, Mm -hmm. you know, so I know, but 
so you that process starts automatically i think when you have a child what changes is starting to search for what's going to be an appropriate program and that's so hard and it's so hard because when your children are younger you are so hopeful that there's going to be a breakthrough mm-hmm. and there are breakthroughs but sometimes they're really tiny ones and then sometimes they're they're larger leaps um, sometimes they don't come till later in life. And you also are always getting different advice from, um, you know, different educators and different people who only see your child in this one environment and they see what that child can do in that one environment. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't always translate into real world settings. Yeah, not at all. So you often have good intentioned advice but it's really can be harmful advice. And, and that comes from like that for me came from like transition teams for Lindsay um, who were, Oh no, Lindsay can go off and she can go to school. And we think Lindsay could even potentially, you know, go to a junior college or go into a program and because she's so verbal and because she can read and she can do these things, but the ability to truly take in all the information of the world that's happening and apply that and understand what's the best way to keep myself safe. She can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't look both ways crossing the street. She just knows that there's, she's got to get from point A to point B. <laughs> yeah. So all of those little things that we see as a protective parent, always watching those things, you know, educators don't see that real world experience all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that was really hard dealing with that, the transition team and their really high expectation of Lindsay and in my desire to meet them where they were, right? Because who doesn't want that for their kid, Mm -hmm. right? Who doesn't want all those wonderful things? Um, That was a challenge. But you have to be realistic too. But you have to be, Mm -hmm. you're right. You have to be realistic. And we learned, and we we learned we that's the first thing we learned when we did that first transition when she was 22 and she transitioned out of school and into that one year of of that independent living environment but people need to start they need to start right away they need mm-hmm. to start as young as they possibly can thinking about these things and researching and keeping on top of things um and one of the things that people may not realize, if, if y'all are out there listening and you have a, a young child with a, with a diagnosis, um, when you sign up to be on an interest list to receive services, and even if you don't think someday your child's going to need it, just get on the list. Mm-hmm. You can say no later. Just get mm-hmm. on the list as soon yeah, as you can. Absolutely. But if you move... You start over. If you mm-hmm. leave that, you leave that state. You start over. Mm-hmm. So, and that was our problem because we started in California, then we moved to Illinois, and then we landed in Texas. So that delayed us, and that's why you know by the time we got back to Texas and started on the list here, that's why it took so long. Uh, well, that's why she was so old. Well, that's why she was so old. It wasn't like, okay, well, she's been on the list since she was three 
And gee, that 15 years went by and now she's 18. So she got services right away. There was just no way for that to happen. So um, that's one of my wishes is that they would make that a federal. I wish that would be federal and it wouldn't matter and it would be follow you wherever you go. Yep. I mean, the service, are they, they still have the needs. It doesn't matter, but yeah, it's, it's a whole, I've, I've learned so much about, you know, the funding that comes from the government and each state can take that and match it or go above and beyond that. And if you live in a state that just doesn't have the extra funding, you barely get to match that. And the amount that they give to each state for disability services and things is a tiny amount anyways, compared to several other categories, but that's a whole nother. Yeah topic. So I would imagine then Luke is on whatever lists he needs to be on and um, yes, all of that. I'm a huge proponent of that as well. And um, I mean, sometimes you have to get, we put Skylar on the waiver here when he was diagnosed because you, you had to have the diagnosis to be put on the waiver. He was diagnosed at three and they told us at that time that was 2006. And they said he, they were just paying out people, um, or, or adding people to the waiver and mm-hmm. giving them services for people that were put on the list in 1991, I think. So mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. So, um, but then they ended up combining all the waivers and making it look good that there was no waiting list, but then services are like, like I said, just right. absolutely minimal. So, but the state can say, we don't have a waiting list. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'd rather be on a waiting list for a bigger service option. But so um, is Luke, um, is he verbal? Or is he, where would yes. he fall on the spectrum? Is he on the higher functioning? So he is on the higher functioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he was young, <laughs> when, when he was little, when he was maybe five, you would say, oh gosh, there's a, there is young Sheldon. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he would be hyper-focused on things. He had to dress a certain way. Um, he had his little khaki shorts and had to wear his belt and had to wear his little shirt, polo shirt with it, you know, tucked in. And then somehow that changed and we got really into sensory stuff. And we had the most hideous pair of shorts. Oh my goodness. It was like these multicolored Minecraft looking <laughs> shorts that were his Dude, favorite pair. And we had to keep, yeah, we had to keep <laughs> finding them in different sizes as he grew because that, that, and a compression shirt. Yeah. He needed that compression. That was all he would wear. And just, oh gosh, that was rough. That was a rough year, man. It was, <laughs> we were so thankful when we finally were able to move him out of that phase and into whatever else. Um, but starting about the time when he was six, then behaviors started Mm. and things got very, 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 very scary and very challenging. Um, school was a significant challenge. Um, we continued to push to have him evaluated and, to have supports put in place for him and the, they would evaluate him and say, well, the only thing that we can do is, is we're going to give him a label of OHI, other health impaired. Cause we just, you know, we don't know what this is, you know, so many different things were happening and he happened to be in a pocket of time in the state of Texas where the state had put a cap on special education. 
And they said that any school could only have 8.25% of their population in special education. Yes, it's illegal. Yes, don't even get me started. <laughs> I'm just how like, they got I'm away with flabbergasted. It. Um, okay. It is because the average, the, the average in any school is roughly 13% to 16%, depending on the general population and location of the, of the school. So roughly half of the kids were, they were finding ways to keep them out of the system. My son being one of them. Um, and literally the week that we unenrolled him from school to homeschool because it had gotten so bad, um, the local newspaper broke the story about this and they did a whole four-part huge series and won all kinds of awards and we're like great you got all these awards but it's been years since the impact has finally trickled down and students are finally getting the services they need and they never were able to get compensation out to those students who missed out for years of services Um, and their way of handling Luke's behavior at six years old was to call the police Mm. and have the police come in and sit down and have a conversation with him in the principal's office. How scary. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Well, being 15, I mean, have you guys talked about any of that stuff since I would imagine you have, and just, I mean, is he able to share how he felt during that time? Well, he, he is, um, at, we went through several episodes. We took him out of school for a year. We found a program within our school district. We re-enrolled him back in school. That lasted two years before we had to take him back out because at that point he um, had an anxiety attack in the classroom. Uh, When he was having an anxiety attack, they didn't recognize it for what it was, which then resulted in a faulty, uh, restraint. Mm. Um, by the time I got there, his face had been black and blue. He had marks on his wrists. Um, he was completely a mess. Uh, we were sent down. We went by ambulance to the children's hospital and he was put on suicide watch. Oh my gosh. And how old was he? 10. Oh my gosh, Lisa. Oh, I'm so sorry. That is just, that is horrific. Is it? It is. Even though I think this is one of the, one of the many common misperceptions about autism in the spectrum when, you know, on paper or when they're described as higher functioning on the spectrum, people just assume that the behaviors and all that goes along with kind of the negative stigma of autism is reserved for the severe end of the spectrum, like my son, Skylar. And, um, you know, it's just so interesting when you have a child that is verbally able to explain themselves, still not able to explain themselves because their bodies are still confusing, whether they have, you know, words, Mm -hmm. spoken words, or, or cannot communicate verbally, they still, their bodies just um, betray them all of the time. And, mm-hmm. um, a doctor explained it to me once that 
although Skylar's been given medication over the years for ADHD or anxiety or whatever, they're just guessing that that's what it is. And I hate that he takes those because I don't feel that maybe that he needs them, but he just said, imagine just, just like creepy crawlies inside of your body all the time. And it's like, you do things that you do not want to do. You cannot control, you know, if you reach mm-hmm. up and smack someone, you don't want to just hit somebody, but your body just does it. And you, it's just so hard mm-hmm. to, for them to explain to anyone. So, um, yeah. I mean, it's, has, he, it, has he aged, has it gotten a little bit better for him to control has, his cell himself? Yes. Um, yeah. we were able at that point, we took him back out of school and we spent a year doing virtual school and, and basically what I call de-schooling, um, because we, ha- we, and everything at that point was we needed now to his ability to trust adults mm-hmm. outside of his parents was like gone. I can't imagine. Just, it was very, very hard. Um, we were able to work with our doctors a little bit after that incident it, it, because we had been on the wait list to be able to even get in to get tested to have an ADOS done. So as a result of that, it, it it pushed us through, we were able to um, kind of take a few extra leaps forward and get the testing done at the autism center here in the Texas Medical Center. And we were able to receive at that point, the autism diagnosis, which then allowed us to go to our insurance company. And they had just passed a, a law that allowed us to, you know, to mandate that they had to um, allow us to seek ABA services. Mm-hmm. And so there was, there's a local program that we've been very active with in our community and we were able to get him on the wait list. And then finally a spot opened. And so the, all of that took a year mm-hmm. <laughs> to be able to get him there. And then he was in that program for two and a half years and then COVID hit. So we did some virtual for a little while, but then that became it's just too hard to keep him focused. You just can't make him attend and do the things that are hard for him anyway (laughs) on screen. And so um, when we were able to go back in person, we did some in-person things, but it had dwindled down from, from, you know, six hours a day to four hours a day to two hours virtual to finally, you know, two hours every other day, one-on-one and we were finally able to kind of graduate out and that was an incredible opportunity for us, an incredible program. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that I explained to people, cause they look at Luke and they're like, well, he's, you know, he's so capable and he's, you know, so verbal and he's functioning at such a high level. And, but they forget that again, going back to all of the executive functioning, all the things it takes for us to hold things together. Mm-hmm. So with the diagnosis, what they tell us is, is that the executive functioning level is going to be at a deficit of 30 to 40%. And you think about that and you're like, okay, what does that mean? Well, that means that if you're 15, you're really functioning like a 10 year old, you know, at the emotional level and at the executive functioning level of a 10 year old, Mm -hmm. but 
but teachers and adults, and I'll look at this kid who's six feet tall, <laughs> right? And, and skinny and looks like, you know, growing into a man who can have a conversation with you about anything. Why can't he do these simple tasks? Why can't right. he organize his homework? Why can't he keep his room picked up? Mm-hmm. Why can't he do whatever these other things are? And yet he can hyper-focus on playing a game or whatever. And it's, you're asking a 10 year old to do the things that, you know, 15 year old would be Mm -hmm. able to do. And he's a boy and they're behind anyway. So it is, it is a challenge. So the hope for Luke is that with supports and with counseling and providing him the right tools that when he is in his mid twenties, that that trailing deficit is going to follow him. Mm-hmm. But now the deficit will be, oh well, he's the, at the deficit of an eighteen functioning eighteen year old. And if I can just get him to a functioning eighteen year old, then he's going to be okay. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, is it a culmination of all of the things that you've experienced as a parent with? all of your kids, um, you know, particularly Lindsay and Luke, um, that pushed you to start Forgotten Wishes Foundation, because I want to make sure we talk about that. I think that's an incredible um, nonprofit that you have started. So can you tell us a little bit about Forgotten Wishes Foundation, what the mission is and what what is all involved with that? Sure. So I love talking about Forgotten Wishes Foundation. (laughs) Um, So what we do Our mission is to spark joy and inspire a sense of belonging for people of all ages with a disability. And this came about really because my years of seeing the isolation that's that's created, the social isolation in particular, um, not just the physical isolation, If you are homebound or dealing with a situation where it's just challenging to be able to get out of your home. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, Luke was not invited to his first birthday party till he was 14. Yeah. Um, And when Lindsay was in the residential facility, which was the 16 bed facility, we had always been highly involved. And what we saw was there were several residents there who didn't have family involved, who didn't have any friends or caregivers involved. Um, A couple of them were because they were a little bit older and their loved ones had passed away. There was one and people, people forget this about disability. You know, you and I talk about it a lot because we're, we're born into it literally Mm -hmm. because our children are born with those disabilities but 80% of all disabilities occur between the ages of 18 and 65, 80%. So what we saw was a lot of those individuals who had a stroke or were in an accident, had something happen and family could no longer take care of them. And basically, I hate to use the term warehoused, but that's what happens. 40% of all these individuals, all these adults have nobody. That's what the the statistics tell us, that there's no family member. There's no friend. There's nobody looking in on them, checking on them. There's nobody sending them birthday cards, holiday cards, you know, just thinking of them. 
And it's not the staff's job in a residential home to do that. It's the staff's job to put food on the table, make sure they're safe, make sure they get their medication, make sure they get to their day programs. It's not to do all those other little things. And it's not that they don't, I don't want to say that they're not caring, but they don't get paid enough and they don't have the time as it is for those extra things. So the Forgotten Wishes Foundation created a subscription program so that individuals can register to be part of what we call our Forgotten Wishes um, Forget-Me-Not Friends Club. And we send gifts and fun things throughout the year to these individuals. And they call it, they, they're now, they've all said, Lisa, this is our happy mail. So Aww. they get their happy mail. And sometimes it's just a card, like they all got Valentine's cards, but they were all handwritten Valentine's cards. Um, I'm getting ready this week. I'm, I'm putting together our, an April mail out and they're going to get a small gift and their newsletter that will have pictures of some of the other friends in their club or pictures they've drawn or different notes and things that they've sent me. And um just some fun things that'll go out to them. So they get, they have something to look forward to when they sign up, they get a welcome package and it has their calendar. So they can actually look and see when the next thing is supposed to come in the mail. Cause I know through dealing with autism, that it's really important to have a schedule mm -hmm. and be able to look and point. Nope. This is when this is going to happen. <laughs> uh, but we really wanted to find a way to provide something simple that would be directly impacting that social isolation and mm -hmm. helping to overcome some of the loneliness that a lot of our loved ones feel, even in, even within our own homes. Uh, Lindsay loves her birthday. That is like the biggest holiday in our house. It's the whole month of October is <laughs> As and she be. knows, you know, <laughs> she's getting cards. She knows that there's going to be a special event of some kind. She knows there's going to be activities and things that we go do. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's just a shame that other people don't have that same opportunity. We want to give that to them if we can. And then one of the fun things that we've done to help um, other people engage with us with that is we have what's called card parties and anybody can sign up to have a card party. And that's just where you can either go purchase store-bought cards or most people actually like to do the crafting part and they make their cards or they buy the blank cards and decorate and design them and then write their notes in them. And then they send them to me and then I distribute those to our club members so that they get cards from people from all over the country. Um, we're in 29 states right now, which is really exciting. And we just keep growing. So what else can I tell you about it, Lori? Well, so what, <laughs> how do people um, sign up to get um, cards and to be somebody, a recipient of the gifts and the, all of that stuff? Mm -hmm. So if they go to our website, which is forgottenwishesfoundation.org, there is, they can go to programs and they'll see everything about the Forget Me Not Friends Club. And there's a place to register there. Um, there's a place on the front page that they can click right to if they just want to jump right to registration. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a link there on the front page. 
So there's lots of ways to do that. And there's also different ways that people can get involved and help support the organization. But just to, just to think about how this makes people feel. You know, take a minute, Lori, and think back when you were seven or eight and you knew it was your birthday. Mm-hmm. And you were anticipating getting, you know, that card in the mail from your aunt or your grandma or a family member that you knew and it was going to come with maybe like the dollar bill in it or yeah. something really exciting. Chris, $5 bill if I was lucky. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just something was going to come in, but there was that, that just that wonderful feeling of this is for me. Mm-hmm. This is special and it's for me and it's comes in the mail addressed to you. And it's just, you know, how did that make you feel when you think back on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to, and then for the day to go by and nothing comes and nobody acknowledges your birthday. That's very, very sad. So I love that you yeah. thought of all so, of this, you know, gosh, people have such great ideas. So, you know, it's sad that it takes your experiences to come up with that this phenomenon that it's happening all over all the time that people are forgotten about and mm-hmm. special events are, are, they go unnoticed and for you to step up and mm-hmm. to try to rectify the problem. I, I just, I love it. Oh, oh, thank you. It is. It has really been an interesting journey. Um, and it's been fun watching how different individuals respond. I mm-hmm. have, um, I have one of my very best friends. She has twin adult boys with autism. And so one boy loves getting the cards and opening up the cards. And he just loves that. And he loves sending greeting cards anyway. And then her other son picks up the card, looks at it, sees that his name is on it and just sets it back down on the table. Cause he's like, I didn't order this. This isn't, you know, this isn't, this isn't mine, mm-hmm. but it's still even, but for her, my friend, it's still a nice feeling to know as the mom, that there's something, there's somebody else besides her celebrating her son's birthday. So even the parents have, that are still there that maybe like I've, my youngest recipient, I think is three. And the oldest, I think right now is 67. So we, you know, spread the gamut on, on this for individuals and it's been just really fun seeing how it impacts not just the individual recipient, but maybe some of the other caregivers in the home. I think mm-hmm. it also is a really nice reminder to staff when they're going to group homes. Oh yeah. It's this person's birthday. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to, maybe we can, you know, get ice cream or do something special after dinner that night or make sure we have something special. So I hope it's also a reinforcer, a positive reinforcer in those environments that they're, when they're not at home. Mm-hmm. It'd be so nice to get every single group home in the country um, with every resident signed up so that nobody's left out so that every yeah. single resident and every single group home, that's, that's our mission yeah. now, right? Like, well, let's, yep. and that would be, and that would be good. So if there's anybody listening and they are a uh, manager of a group home, or they are involved in that care of individuals in group homes, 
they can go up and they can, they're considered a legally authorized representative and they can go and register their clients in the group home because they oversee care for those individuals. So it is okay for them to sign them up. Um, we do not send out that we don't sell that information. We are extremely private. I'm a mom. I know how worried I would be about making sure that people are holding that information securely. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really an important thing to me. In fact, we keep, I keep those individuals in a separate database so that they are even more secure than like donors and sponsors and subscribers who help us cover the cost of the program. Mm -hmm. Well, that's wonderful. I, I am so excited to have made your acquaintance and, um, you've given me a lot to think about. And there's, there's always a lot to think about when it comes to our, uh, children aging into adulthood mm -hmm. and all of the resources that are lacking. And then the things that like you have already kind of trailblazed some of that stuff. So you can tell me some of the, and everyone else, <laughs> some of the tips and tricks to avoid and to, to be considerate of when you're future planning and all of that. And every one of our situations is so unique and and different, but, um, I just, I, I am absolutely thrilled to know that parents like you are out there, not just making a difference in your own child's mm -hmm. or children's lives, but that you are recognizing people that, like you said, who are, are not celebrated as much as they should be, or they're maybe alone in the world and don't have family anymore. Um, I love forgotten wishes foundation. I think that is just such a beautiful thing and a, such a tribute to, um, you as a mom and as a person with oh, a huge heart. You. <laughs> so I love that. I will link up the website um, in the show notes so that people can easily find you. And if there's any way that uh, I, you said it's mentioned on there, how we can support either financially donate mm -hmm. a bunch of cards mm -hmm. or whatever it is to help. Um, yep. I love that as well. So I will make sure that we can get in touch with you and help support your mission. And your nonprofit. Oh, thank you so much, Lori. It's been yeah. such a delight speaking with you. Yeah, and, I'm sure um, we could talk for hours. <laughs> yeah. Anybody who wants to make a connection, feel free. You can reach out. You know, there's I'm easy to find on Instagram and Facebook and anywhere else. So if they've I'll got link questions those too. or yeah, yeah, I'm there. Mm -hmm. I will link those too, so people can ask you more specifics if they have yeah. them. Um, but yeah. thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Lori. You have an awesome day. We'll Thanks talk to you, you again too. soon. Hope you enjoyed okay. this episode of Living the Sky Life and we'll tune in for the next episode coming soon. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Living the Sky Life podcast within Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play so you'll receive alerts when new episodes are released. Subscribing is the best way to ensure you don't miss a single episode. If you like what you hear, be sure to select the five-star rating, provide feedback, and share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for listening.